Welcome to Bad Patient, Malpractice Makes Perfect. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Beers. And we're here for episode two to bring you our take as two bad patients on health news, medical updates, and everything in between. So maybe, Laura, since we this is just our second episode, we should tell everyone how we do this again. Do you think? Yeah, for sure, because they probably have forgotten since last week. I mean, um, hard to believe that's possible, but yeah, go for it. You explain. So I find some interesting topics that I find interesting. So it's me. It's my fault. If you'd like to suggest a topic, you can do so by tweeting the bad patient um, on Twitter. Um, and then I send Robin uh, just a one word description of what we're going to be talking about. And then right before we get started, I email Robin the article. So she's just giving you um, just a fresh take for what she is reading and kind of processing it that way. Whereas, uh, cause she's understands more medical things than I do. <laughs> I don't. And I'm a little more obsessed about it, I guess you could say. Okay. Just mildly. <laughs> Yeah, and I also want to point out that sometimes the words that you send me are, like, very questionably related. Like, I think one of the ones this week was clocks, and I was like, I don't even, I mean, I was like, circadian rhythms or, like, sleep phase disorders. So there's there's an element of mystery. Yeah, I mean, the game that I play in my head, spoilers, is um, what can I do to confuse Robin today? <laughs> 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 and sometimes you also like spell them wrong so there was one i think there was one last time that was like heat attacks and i was like oh like heat stroke and then it turned out to be heart attacks so <laughs> you know i just like to keep you on your toes it's working it's totally working all right so <laughs> what do you have for me this week i just opened my email uh, so our first article comes from nbc news um, and it is about CVS. CVS to limit opioid prescriptions to seven-day supply. So with in light of the opioid uh, crisis that is happening um, across the country, CVS is limiting opioid prescriptions to a seven-day supply for certain conditions. Um, and it's the first national retail, retail chain to restrict how many pills a doctor can give a patient. Um, when filling the prescriptions for opioids, pharmacists will also be required to talk to patients about the risk of addiction, securing proper um, storage of medicine, and proper disposal. Um, Whoa. It's limiting Oxycontin and Vicodin. Um, uh, the average pill supply given by doctors in the U.S. has increased from 13 days in 2006 to 18 days in uh 2015, according to the CDC. Okay. Uh, CVS has medications for nearly 9 million customers uh, at 9,700 retail locations, and it yeah. plans to go in f- into effect in February. Uh, of 2018. Okay. Of 2018. And... So they're just like, heads up? <laughs> heads up on this Orwellian little proposal here? Yeah, well, the other thing I think is interesting in this article is that something I didn't realize because I'm a non-smoker, um, that CVS is oh, yeah. was the first large retail pharmacy to stop selling cigarettes in 2014. Yeah, yeah. and actually, in 2015, CVS like came out with some analysis, which I haven't examined closely, where they, they claim that they have actually, in a small but significant way, reduced the number of cigarettes sold to people in the U.S. So there was like this, and I just know because I followed this story when it first came out, because I, unlike you, was really excited about it, although I am also not a smoker. Uh, thank God. But so so CVS claimed that, you know, this would reduce smoking, and their detractors said, you know, everyone's just going to go and buy the cigarettes elsewhere, and CVS is now saying, no, there's been a small decrease. And I, honestly, like, I was a big fan of them not selling cigarettes. Like, I thought that that could have a a very positive impact on public health. So I feel 
I don't know. Is it hypocritical if I say that I hate this? Uh, maybe CVS is also saying that with their... So the reason why they're talking about securing the drugs and disposing of the drugs is because 5% of adults um, have admitted to... Sharing. Uh, taking opioids without a doctor's, their doctor's permission. Yeah. Often getting the meds from, for free from their friends and relatives. Yeah. Um, and since they're highly addictive. Um, part of it, it kind of at the end kind of talks about it, about whether or not it's do no harm and whether or not reducing the oh amount of yeah. opioids that they're giving out, not necessarily like the amount or whatever, but just, like, how much you have, so you have to keep coming back yeah. uh, without offering, like, an alternative to pain treatment or um, can, can uh, is really issue. doing anything yeah. to help. Okay, um, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm having so, I'm, I'm having a struggle because I loved I told I said this already but I love the cigarette thing I totally I'm totally opposed to this I I don't like this I like the counseling I like them talking to people about storing storing them safely taking them safely fine but I mean this to me feels like like they're they're putting a like a retail pharmacist in between a person who is a patient and a medical provider, you know? I mean, I get, I get that. They're not saying that you can't come back in seven days and get the rest of your pills. Yeah, but you have to keep coming. Yeah. No, I don't know. I'm torn. I mean, obviously like addiction is a huge problem. This is a huge public health problem. Like that's really undeniable at this point, but I just, there's, there's like a lot going on here. You know, like there's what I what I'm wondering is if this is in regards to like I I mean I don't think any state has sued a retail pharmacy, but they have sued like the manufacturers mm-hmm. of the opiates, and they've sued the pharmacists, the pharmacies, yeah, for for it. Like Ohio sued because I live in Ohio, and Ohio, like my hometown, has a huge opioid problem right uh where um what is this the stuff that um stops a uh narcan yeah so like narcan calls i think happened maybe once or twice a day maybe oh my god here and i i'm in a small town like not a big city not a you know Mm -hmm. not suburbia i i mean we're a small town and yeah it's it's a real issue, and there there are a lot of heroin addicts, and like I can agree that it is putting a retail person between you and your doctor. However, I think uh, the nature of op- opioids is yeah. incredibly addictive, and that somebody needs to be doing something because right. these doctors aren't aren't doing it, and. Well, but then maybe start with the physicians, you know, and start with the prescribers. Because my my concern would be there is a reason that this physician is prescribing this drug. So if the physician is prescribing the drug in an inappropriate way, that's something we should address with the physician, not have some pharmacist say, oh, what your doctor prescribed was wrong. Although, I mean, I guess it's like... What I mean, the- to be fair, pharmacists are medical professionals. They go to school. They yeah. It's their job. They are responsible to make sure that your drugs aren't interfering with each other. Like, that's their job. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I think- they are also a medical professional. And I think yeah. that as a company who supri- supplies different drugs that can have negative effects, it is, you know, CVS's choice to, to put it. I think that... Um, in the same vein that they can choose to not provide tobacco products. But that's a little um, different. Because I mean, you don't have a medical need to smoke a cigarette. I mean, it's a, it's an addiction. Yeah, but people filling prescriptions in a pharmacy are not addicts by definition. You know, like, that's that's a different thing. They could be, but they're not necessarily. And I think that's, like, a really important distinction. So, okay, I'm seeing, like, a bunch of different things here, but I guess 
I feel like I agree with you fundamentally. Like, it's a big problem and this could possibly help. But I have, like, a ton of, like, concerns about this. I guess. I mean. Okay. I mean, my. I mean, my concern is that we are. Society is paying the price for over prescribing. Right. So, like, that's part of, like, the lawsuit against the manufacturers and Mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical companies is that they push these drugs as a miracle drug that could do all these things without properly informing and in in some cases what is being suggested is purposely hiding the fact Mm. the addictive nature of it and so i agree that like i can see your point where like pharmacies are shouldn't be in between but like something needs to be done and it's like an emergency. People, yeah, like th- like it is an epidemic right. on a large scale. So all medical professionals in an epidemic would need to be like all hands on deck. So yeah. it needs to be a combination. Absolutely. I agree that it needs to be a combination with the doctors who are prescribing it overly, you know, too much or incorrectly or not talking to their patients, but also right. um, with people who are suffering from a addiction being able to get the support and access to um, rehab, you know, right. when they're ready for that. Yeah. And, and, you know, with the people who are fulfilling these prescriptions. I mean, these are the people who see it day, day in and day out. Like, your doctor won't see you with your addiction, but your pharmacist might. Your pharmacist you know? might. Because yeah, but so the pharmacist, pharmacist would have a more contact with you but the pharmacists already have databases and ways of like screening for abuse and they can i think that they can already refuse to fill prescriptions like i know um where i so i live in portland oregon and i know we have a number of pharmacies that just don't they don't fill or any opioid prescriptions like if you were to have one like they just they're just they don't do it um which i think is interesting and probably effective and useful for them but kind of i don't know it's a weird it's a weird thing um, I, I think part of this, though, and what's kind of bugging me about this is, like, I see abuse and, and opioid abuse as something that I think we often say we're seeing it as, like, kind of all, like, it's all these people with pain and it's, like, these doctors and it's this and it's that. And, yes, that's, like, a way that it happens. But I want to kind of make some separations here. Like, one being that there is, obviously, like, there's difference between abusing a medication and and taking it as prescribed. There's a lot of information out there where we've changed our thinking on opioids as effective for chronic non-cancer pain. But there are still people who are in a great deal of pain, and perhaps this is their best option, even though it's not a great option. So there's that. I, I also think pharmacists may may not be super educated on abuse. So that kind of concerns me. And like in these cases where the pharmacist can control whether or not a patient or a person receives a medication that their physician has prescribed, if the pharmacist can say no to that, then I want to be very, very sure that the pharmacist is like, I don't know, do they have access to the person's medical records? And are they are they truly, truly well educated about abuse? But really, I, to me, the biggest issue here is is that I I feel like we're we're treating abuse as a medical as a moral problem when really it's more of a medical problem. So you could argue that this then is a step in the right direction of saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna be more hesitant about how we prescribe. But the truth is that acute pain that's not adequately treated can turn into chronic pain. So so say you have a an injury and you go and you get your prescription and like I mean how many of us I just wonder. I wonder if there's going to be people who need the medication who should be legitimately taking it for an acute condition that are then like not going to have time to go back. It seems like something that could disproportionately affect low-income people. So I will admit these are all kind of minority situations. Um, minority meaning most people are not in the situation, but we have a lot of problems with with being moralistic around abuse. And then I think we start to like deputize people who maybe aren't qualified. And I I would really prefer that we start to see abuse as a true medical issue and start treating people with addiction, both like human beings and in, and in an effective way, which may not involve like, like putting them in prison, but offering them, um, 
rehab and support services and social services and allowing them to relapse without locking them up because that is part of like this disease process. So I don't know, like I totally see what you're saying that this could really help, but it just worries me, you know, it worries me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a question. Does a retail chain have a moral responsibility for helping prevent or slow down a epidemic that they helped cause? What is their responsibility? For? Yeah. Or like, do we say like, are they responsible? Like, is the CVS pharmacist? I, I mean, I they're, yeah. they supplied, they supplied the drugs. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. They, whether in completely legitimately yeah. and legally, but mm-hmm. yes, they absolutely watched the selling of these drugs and yeah. and push, you know, helped push for it. The pharmacists, yeah. the doctors, the drug companies, the manufacturers, they yeah. all are, in my opinion, morally culpable for the epidemic that we have. Yeah, and I think also we as human beings who are sometimes patients are also responsible Um because one of the ways that people become addicted, I think there's like, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's people with pain or like it's people who the medications are prescribed to who are like, that's all the, that's all the people who become addicts. But one interesting thing I found when I was researching this was that a lot of it is happens through what's called drug diversion. So it'd be like, I don't know, like, did you ever have your wisdom teeth out or something? No, I am very wise. No. <laughs> well, I already knew that. <laughs> So I don't know, but say, say like I'm in a car accident and, and I, I don't know, I, I'm not really sure exactly when I would get an opioid, but I don't know, say, say I am injured and I get something like legitimately. And then a month later, maybe you have like some similar accident, but you don't go to the doctor. And then I'm like, oh, hey, Laura, is your shoulder really sore and you, oh, you couldn't afford to go to the doctor? Well, I have some whatever left over, so let me just pass them on to you. That is, so that's drug diversion. And I think that's something that then exposes more and more people to the, to these like addictive substances and can result in higher levels of, of this problem. So that was kind right, of interesting is, to me. Right. Which I think is like what CVS is trying to do with the talk of proper disposal. So like in theory that your pharmacist would talk to you about your opioids and then when you don't need them, you know how to properly get rid of them. So they're not in your cabinet Mm -hmm. when my shoulder hurts because I was hit by a car but didn't go to the doctor. Exactly. You know, or whatever, you know. Yeah. So I th- I think like that is one way that CBS is trying to. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it is I mean they're not prescribing alternative medicines instead <laughs> of what your doctor is doing and they're not, you know, trying to help get you help, but they are trying to maybe limit limit that diversionary. Yeah. What did you call it? Diversion? Drug drugs? diversion. Drug diversion by having you have less Access. A smaller supplies, you mm-hmm. would have less access yeah. and you would know what to do with it and know not to give yeah. it to your friend. You know, I you think know. what I'm thinking of is also like there's I can't I can't think of the exact term, but the the phrase number needed to treat is floating through my head. And there is a concept in when they're like researching treatments for medications and it's like, how many people do you have to screen in order to help one person like in a cancer screening or something? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about this and I guess, and and maybe I'm like overly sympathetic to like the little guy here, but I I start to think also, so like how many people are we going to keep from abuse versus how many people may we legitimately harm? And like, what's the depth of the harm on one side or the other? I mean, they both seem pretty, pretty big, but I don't know. There's something that just, that just scares me about this. So, um, there's also something that scares me about addiction. So I I think it's a shame to be, to be fair I am biased um, about this topic, mm-hmm. um, extremely so. Um, my husband is a former addict, and we talked about this um, and just um, when I saw the article. And as a former addict, he's, he thinks that this is a positive step because he knows how easy 
these drugs were to get a hold of. And I mean, part of, part of preventing other people from coming, going down the same path that he did is, you know, to cut the supply in the more legitimate ways in which people get access to those. Um, I, I mean, and so, so for me, that's my bias and that's why I think I'm a more stronger proponent of it than, than maybe the average lay person. Um, because it ruined my husband's life and, um, you know, if he, he hadn't had those experiences, we would never have met. So in the grand scheme of things, it all worked out for the best, but like he had some really rough years because of addiction and, um, it was opioid and he, in my opinion, is lucky that he survived it. Came out of that. Yeah, for sure. Because when people, I mean, when people can't get access to opioids, they use heroin and that's where Mm -hmm. a lot of our current overdoses are happening. And I realize that this might cause more people to go to heroin, but I'm in my head. I hope that it means that less people start get addicted. Exactly. Yeah, Laura. So I think like, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, that's obviously something that I knew, but I know our listeners did not know. And I think that's, it's something that I think like people don't realize that the people that we see in our lives every single day often have overcome things that, that are invisible to us. Right. And so we think about people with addiction and it's, I think that's what bothers me about all the judgment is we think like those bad people. But the truth is that for some people, they might use a substance one time and become addicted. So, you know, that's really, that's really rough. And I think to be fair and to have a little disclosure on my part, I had some experiences um, in college where in retrospect, I feel like I needed pain medication Um, like in emergency room situations and did not receive it because I was 19 and 20. And it was just kind of like, uh, you're good. And, you know, and sometimes the people were even kind of rude or like treated me, you know, as if, as if I was under, under suspicion. So I think that having been in some of those situations where I was in a great deal of pain and then there was no assistance, I kind of just, I feel for these people now who may be really, like, relying on these medications, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, like, you didn't, you wouldn't have gotten your pain medicine from CVS. Like, that would have been prescribed in the hospital. You know, like, that's a different pharmacist. That's a different situation. But I totally get, like, what you're saying. Yeah. About that. Like, that... Some doctors, I mean, it's a pendulum, right? So some doctors yeah. prescribe too freely, and others were way were way too stingy. And yeah. um, I mean, to be totally nerdy, I mean, there might have been some gender bias about that because oh god, um, yeah, that's, that's another thing too is that women complaining of pain are less likely to receive yes pain medication than men because and they're um, less likely to be taken seriously. I mean, right? There's some really Oh, God, I'm glad that wasn't the topic. I don't even know if I could talk about that. I think I might just start crying. No, it's so, I mean, it's so disheartening when you look at the statistics on minorities and women and God help them, minority women who go into like emergency room situations and they say I'm having terrible pain and it's just like, I mean, they're... they're, Take it off. Yeah, I mean, everyone's just like, stop being hysterical. Like, ah... Ugh, Laura, we got to move on. I'm going to just start yelling about gender issues. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so our next article comes from the BBC News, and it is um, titled Bio- Body Clock Scientists Win Nobel Prize. <laughs> and I'm sure body clock scientist is their preferred term, right? Yeah. Oh, my God, it's James Gallagher. Shout out, James Gallagher. Love your work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what he's good i read a lot of his stuff (laughs) you're such a nerd i love you i know okay i had to scroll up and see see where that name came from (laughs) um sorry sorry james um so this is talking about the body clock or uh circadian rhythm rhythm I knew how to say that word, but seeing it written, it looked different than what I thought it would be spelled like. That's fair. Um, <laughs> is the reason why we sleep at night. 
And different changes in uh, behavior can, in that behavior can change body function. And so uh, three U.S. scientists, Jeffrey Hall, Jeffrey Rossbash, and Michael, Michael Young. Michael Rossbash. Ross, Michael Rossbash. Ross yes. <laughs> I think we pretty much uh, killed his name. So, Michael, wherever you are, we're very sorry. Rossbash. So, there are <laughs> three U.S. scientists, Jeffrey Hall, Michael Rossbash, and Michael <laughs> Young, will share the prize. Uh, they're, they kind of broke this wide open, and they're kind of the reading or the father, you know, the grandfathers of... Um, <laughs> you changed that from fathers to grandfathers. Is that because you look down in the picture and they all have white hair? Uh, no. I, you ages. I heard about this on <laughs> NPR. Oh. And they they called them grandfathers, I think. Um, Of, like, clock biology. Like, looking up how mm. all of that s- started. Uh, so, like, if you've ever traveled... Oh, and, and I And you've have. been jet-lagged... Uh, that's your circadian rhythm being out of sync with the world okay. around you. Super tangent about jet lag mm-hmm. because I went yes. through this like I went through this period this summer where I, there was like five or six trips that I took in six weeks, and three or four of them were like into a different time zone. And I became somewhat obsessed with the concept of like beating jet lag or just at a certain point of of like mental breakdown, you know, like whatever happens in your mind where you keep going back and forth, it's not good. I started talking to other people about how they experience jet lag. And I swear to you, every person I talked to said that they were totally fine. Like, oh no, Rob and I, I go here and I just, I just, oh, I just stay up or I go to bed early or whatever. Like they made it sound like they took a little nap or they went to bed an hour early and they were completely unaffected. So then I, then I felt like, is there something wrong with me that I, I feel like affected for multiple days? Like, it seems like if it's three hours or more, it takes me a few days to really like lock in and feel like my normal self, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, normal self being kind of a, I don't know, like, what is that? But anyway, especially in my case, um, <laughs> but, but so I finally, I finally had to tell myself that these were people who were on vacation or like did not have a set schedule. Cause I had one trip where I went from like Oregon to South Carolina and I, w- I didn't feel all that affected. And I, and I thought I've cracked the code, but I realized that was what was happening was I was just waking up super late. Like maybe at home, I wake up at like six 30 or seven and I was waking up at 10 or 10 30. And so the feeling of not being impacted was more like I'm on vacation and I can wake up when I want. And when I can do whatever I want and whatever feels good, I don't feel, I'm like, I'm not as affected. So I think, um, I'm not sure what the point of this is other than just to yell at all those people and be like, don't tell people you're not affected by jet lag. It's very damaging. Okay. Cause I thought there was something wrong with my brain. Turns out it's all good. <laughs> yeah. So these guys, uh, figured out, um, on the mil- on the molecular clocks that are built into across the um, animal kingdom, and their breakthrough f- was in fruit flies. Um, okay, and they uh, Hall and Rosh Roshbash uh, <laughs> isolated a section of DNA called the period gene, which has imp- implications for the uh, for the rhythm. And the period gene contains instructions for making a protein. Um, and then okay. Young discover, discovered the gene called timeless and another one called double time. And they both affect the stability of that uh, protein. Wait, were they were the genes called that or did they call them that? I mean, it says they, they were called that, but I don't know. I don't know. Wait, this piece is a little weird because every sentence is a new paragraph. I wonder if my good friend James was rushed. Don't worry, James. We still love you. But this is a little... I wish I had a little more detail on some of these things. Because I feel like I... Oh, it says they discovered a gene called timeless. In my brain, I'm saying they discovered the gene and then they named it that. You really don't care about this, do you? (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's self-identified as timeless. (laughs) It didn't, like, wave its little hand. I'm timeless. Stuck out like a telomere or something. (laughs) Yeah. Um... But it kind of like it started the whole this whole branch of bi- 
a study of biology, and so that's why they won. Um, and I just thought it was cool. Uh, it was three yeah. U.S. Uh, scientist, and uh, I'm in the United States, and therefore I find that interesting. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> All right, comments about being in the U.S. and only finding things from the U.S. interesting aside. I want to point out that James is, like, not in the U.S., and he found it interesting. So, Anyways, this is from the BBC. I know. The BBC does a really good job of cover like i love their coverage of things in the u.s because it's just funny to see someone else's take on like kind of like a what are they up to now uh which those crazy kooks yeah sometimes with our political climate they they have some interesting reactions but um yeah i think i think the whole body clock thing has been like hugely impactful in recent years but I, I think there's still some, like, circadian rhythm bias. And I was talking to a friend about this the other day. We both felt like we were night people or, like, at least not early morning people. But felt like the world, to a certain extent, is really set up for morning people. Like, people that are can get up and then be somewhere and ready to go at 8 a.m. Um, so I feel like good for them for... Those people are the worst. I mean... I, I envy them. Like, so many people that I've worked out with, it's like, it's 7.30 a.m. on a Saturday, and they're f- totally fine. And I'm, like, barely getting to the gym on time, right? Like, if I work out in the morning, I feel like, like, I kind of, I need some kind of reward for that or something, because it's such a hard thing for me to do. So I hope that they keep working and figure out how we can influence our body clock. Did you, do you see the picture in this article? Mm-hmm. That one, okay. The guy in the middle, righteous tie. The guy on the left, righteous hat. These these guys look like someone I would like have fun having a cocktail with or something. <laughs> like they just look fun, don't they? In a way, yes. yeah. And I I think it's important that with the context of this kind of uh, research. So like fruit flies, probably not going to impact the human world all that much. But mm. um, especially with the um, amount of people who work second or third shift or right. a rotating shift and, yeah. you know, how that that can affect it. I think that this kind of research um, can help support uh, workers that way to make sure that they are um, getting the support that they need. Yeah, their, and, it, um, and, it, and it sounds like they took it beyond just fruit flies and, and showed how that went all the way across different animals. I, I want more information. The story, I, I feel like the story could have more information. So I'm looking up the uh, press release on NobelPrize.org. That's cute that the Nobel people <laughs> bought NobelPrize.org. Man. Uh, okay. So it, se- it seems like, based on the press release, that what was exciting about what they did was isolating the gene that controls these normal rhythms. So it was kind of a genetic discovery. I think the... The article might not emphasize that as much as it could, but so that that ended up being something that applied to all sorts of different species. And fun fact, did you know that the word circadian is Latin circa around dies, meaning day? Hmm? That's exciting. Yeah, I knew that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that you're... Circadian rhythms are very, like, they can be easily, what do you call that? Kind of like knocked out of whack. And that can affect all sorts of things like your immunity, your immune system, and, and ability to respond to threats is is compromised. And there's some pretty terrifying information about there about people who work the night shift, um, if that's not their normal rhythm. And I think it's like a, it would be a tiny, tiny minority of people for whom that would be. It's. I mean, it's. It shortens your lifespan. It. It increases. I think your risk for heart disease. Like, don't quote me on that. But it's. There's all sorts of links to various ailments because it's just like your body is saying essentially like this isn't right. So, quote, Robin Donovan. <laughs> your body is saying no, no to this. <laughs> cool. I just thought it was interesting because it's just like something that's super. Like, uh, research can sometimes feel like it's super inaccessible, and I just mm-hmm. I just like the Nobel Peace Prize. So. <laughs> well, to be fair, this isn't the Peace Prize. This is just... Yeah, well, the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. yeah, and I think 
maybe the Nobel Prize is easier yeah. to um, yeah. Contextualize did not bring about world <laughs> I mean, but we don't want to. We don't want to say they couldn't, right? But they might. They still might. Like so, bring it on, fruit flies. <laughs> but no, I think the cool thing about the Nobel Prize, in a way, is it's kind of, as far as I understand it, it's recognizing almost like a a lifetime of work. So, yeah. so they are kind of taking the hundred thousand foot view, and maybe that's why it's easier for for us to look at and say like, oh yeah, that's obviously a really good thing. Whereas like your everyday research, you know. It is not likely to have this kind of impact because this I'm sure they it's not like one study it's their whole careers which is why they're um what do you call them the grandfathers, the grandfathers. that's why they're the grandfathers thanks grandfathers appreciate all your work um so our next article is from fox news and it is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month key terms you should know oh my god this lead image what is that that is a woman a patient <laughs> for patient with breast cancer. There are a series of terms that you should be familiar. with. Oh, that's with. a stock st- a stock image of a woman. I stuck. She grabbing her tatas, and her she's ta-ta. wearing a pink tank top. Wow. Yeah. I bet you there's this image with her wearing an orange tank top, a green tank top. <laughs> you know what? I a blue be- tank top. I bet. Like they just they just you know modified the color without. Not saying that they made her wear a bunch oh my of shirts. God, but. what? Okay, all right. Tell us what the article is about. I'm going to try to stop looking at this. <laughs> so the article is about different terms that you should know with regards to October being uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, huh. um, and and what they mean, which I thought was good to know. I mean, if it feels a little clickbaity to me, but fine. Fine. I mean, yeah. yeah. It absolutely is. Like, a little but info is not I, bad. I get breast cancer, and I don't know what BRCA1 and BRCA2 are. I could type in that, and if this pops, it's an easy way for me to understand and help me be a bad patient. Although, to be fair, these two sentences hopefully are not the only information that you're going to get. Well, it's a starting point, right? Yeah. That's true. I like the first word, benign, when something is not cancer. <laughs> like, that's very important. Yeah, well, if you have a lump and it's benign, then you're cool. Well, no, honestly, if you have a lump and it's benign, it's somewhat likely that you're going to end up getting some unnecessary testing and be exposed to some health risks and some radiation. So honestly, it's not necessarily cool, but I mean, like in the grander scheme of things, it's not cancer, I mean, so that's super it's good. Cool. It's cool in the way that you don't have cancer. Yeah, but, you know, somebody might cut into you is the point still. so. But, yeah, I get, it's cool in the cancer sense. To the extent I that... I think you're being, <laughs> you're being a little bit literal, <laughs> Robin. Oh, man. I the best <laughs> word that you can come up from this list would be the benign one, if you had to pick one. If that's I, the one you want. I mean, that's the funniest one because it's so short <laughs> when something is not cancer. If I had to pick the best one, mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't know. <sighs> I mean, maybe the HER2 because that's one that I don't think as many people know. So they're saying um, human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, HER2 slash NEU, which I guess is pronounced new, is a type of protein involved in cell growth and survival, appears on the surface of some breast cancer cells. Uh, okay. Although that doesn't really tell us all that much. It says HER2 status and hormone receptor status can affect the type of care someone gets. So, I mean... I guess, like, props to these people for giving us, like, a little topical vocabulary type of thing. And, and this is honestly the kind of piece that I think I might write if someone said, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month tomorrow. Come up with something. And it was, like, 4.45 and I wanted to leave at 5. Then I'd be like, here's what you need to know. Um, I don't Tell know. Out, Robin. Do you see a name on this piece? I Actually, my... Uh, computer's frozen so i can't tell you <laughs> uh no and i wouldn't call someone out anyway like on it something negative 
I mean, this is just kind of a generic piece then, right? Like, Oh, I see what you're saying. There is no... Yeah. So, I mean, this is... I'm not saying, like, somebody just dialed it in. We should call out Joe Schmo for just dialing in. No, I'm just saying, like... Yeah. They didn't even think it was worth bylining. Yeah, this doesn't have a byline. Okay, so forget this article because it's just a vocabulary. What's your feeling on Breast Cancer Awareness Month? I mean, I feel like people are aware. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I'm kind of, I have, like, mixed feelings, because, like, I feel like breast cancer is, like, the sexiest of all the cancers or whatever. Yeah. Cancer is, like, the sexiest of all, like, diseases that you can have with, like, the amount of research that goes into it and Mm -hmm. the amount of, like, awareness of it. Like, a lot of people are aware of what cancer is, and, you know, it's it's a big, scary word, and if I um, have never had a cancer scare, so, like, it's just, you know. Yeah. I think that it's important that women, uh, you know, check uh, themselves and talk to their medical professional. Well, that's sure actually they... no longer the recommendation. So they they now advise against, and they yeah. Um, so they're saying that that was not a. Well, then a why is this enough. woman grabbing her boob? Well, I guess Fox didn't hear about that. Um, yeah, so the, it used to be the recommendation that women did women in the U.S. did monthly self exams, but more recently they updated that and said that that was no longer necessary so women were i guess not i don't know it didn't it didn't have as much of an impact as they had hoped so we're not medical professionals and we're not very good at finding cancer within ourselves <laughs> right so i don't know i mean it's interesting i've i've had um like OBGYNs tell me to still do it i've had i had another one tell me oh it doesn't matter now um but i think so i mean getting back to like Getting back to the, like the breast cancer thing, the awareness month thing, I think it it was it was good to raise the awareness because our grandmothers were probably in a generation where it was such a shameful thing. Women didn't talk about it and just died and and you know. But now it's like there's like pink tic tac boxes and pink mop heads and I feel like we're awash in pink things and i think pink washing is actually a term like green washing there's pink washing so i want to be supportive of like awareness especially yeah, I mean, around women's health but i just question i feel like it's the nfl has wears oh has my God. breast cancer you know like i know and meanwhile they're beating their wives and dragging them by the hair out of elevators right like was that the nfl I don't really know a lot yeah. about sport. Okay. I mean, that was a person in the NFL. Yes. To be fair, yes, that was not literally <laughs> that the is NFL. Not the NFL. <laughs> yeah. But I'm saying like the NFL in terms of uh promoting women's rights, I'm I'm saying has a shaky history at best. I mean, I guess I I could be corrected on that. I'm not an NFL watcher or fan, but I I've heard some stories and and, and they're not they're not super good. Not great. Not great. So I wonder if people are listening to this and wondering about um, checking on checking on screening standards. Um, if anyone wants to look into this, the agency that does this for the U.S. is called the U.S. Preventive uh, Services Task Force with the happy acronym USPSTF. And they actually publish all of their recommendations. And I think they even rate them on like a letter scale. So they'll say like, this is what we recommend. And this is like a B plus. Like, we're pretty sure. Um, so sometimes those can be hard to interpret because like they don't have all the information about everything, but I thought we, we may have just raised questions in people's minds about whether or not they should be doing things. So, uh, talk to your doctor. And if you want to know if your doctor is following the, U- the USPSTF guidelines, say that five times fast, you can check that out. I know. I think that they are... So they are U.S. Preventive Services Task Force.org. All spelled out? Yes. Just the way I said this it. So you, long. yeah, U.S. Preventive Services. This is really long. Service. You know what? You're, you're going to have to Google it. Maybe we could tweet out a link or something. Okie dokie. So if you follow us on The Bad Patient on Twitter, we will tweet a link where we send you to this website so you can see for yourself and you do not have to trust us since we are, after all, just bad patients. <laughs> But yeah, no, I think, I think. Question. Yes, ma'am. Question, Robin. Go for it. Is that URL less than 140 characters? Because. We can bitly it if it's not. 
(laughs) (laughs) I know. Actually, it is an extremely long... Listen, Laura, they're not branding experts. They're medical experts, okay? Like, or they're, I mean, they're scientists. A, maybe maybe somebody needs a strategic rebranding. Uh, you know what? They should call me for that, all right? They should. <laughs> but they haven't yet, and that shocks me. That shocks me every day. Hey, <laughs> USPSTF, if you want some help with your branding, tweet us at the bad patient. We'll be here. Hit me on my mobile. Hit us on our mobile. <laughs> oh, man. I I like I actually really like their website. I think it's like really user friendly. Um, but I'm gonna shut up about it before you call me a nerd again. I feel like we're right in the cusp of that. Yeah. All right. You ready for our last? Topic? No, no, I'm not at all ready. Okay, I have another thing okay. to say on this one. That go for it. That like <laughs> I, okay. So there's obviously a lot of controversy around breast cancer and breast cancer screenings, and I don't I don't personally want to take a super strong stance. But um, there is a health journalist who is female and who I hugely respect, who has covered this issue, spin mammograms specifically around breast cancer, um, almost annually for a number of years. And it's gotten to the point where she's ever, like, now the updates are like, I can't believe I'm still writing about this. But she adds information every single year. Her name is Christy Ashwanden, which is really hard to spell. But um, she writes for a website called 538.com. Um, you can spell that out, 538.com. And um, she has covered this in such detail that I really think if you want to do a ton of research and and learn more about the mammogram debate and how these screening guidelines come out and like why there's so much controversy and why there's so much misunderstanding, I feel like we don't have time to go through all of it here. But um, I would highly, highly recommend checking out her work. And her last name is spelled A-S-C-H-W-A-N-D-E-N. So there you go. Cool. Yeah, she is amazing. Now are you ready? I'm yes, I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So inspired by your uh, uh, current medical fascination, I found an article on health.com. So take it for what you will. Uh, The article is warning: Do not mix these supplements. Even the most common supplements can have surprising interactions with drugs and other supplements. Okay. So it's just talking about being cautious with these combos. Um, it's talking about fish oil, calcium. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Melatonin. Melatonin, yeah. Uh, St. John's wort, wort. Vitamin D. Zinc. Vitamin D. Thought vitamin D was good for everything. Let's check this out. Might decrease the effectiveness of cholesterol-lowering drug hmm. of Lipitor. Which I feel like half of America is currently taking, so. And can also interfere with some high blood pressure medications. So this story kind of reminds me of my grandmother who is um, 86 years old, but at the time she was probably in her 70s. Okay. Um, she... Anytime she read an article about any kind of um, supplement or uh, a vitamin that would do X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. she would go out and <laughs> Get buy it. it. <laughs> yeah. And um, she was an incredibly healthy, you know, 75-year-old woman. And um, she she took, you know, one time her doctor asked her what all she was taking. So she... For her next appointment, she took she brought in all of her all of her uh, vitamins and stuff, and he told her oh that um, she didn't need any of those, and he threw them all away. He threw them away in the office. That's what she said. So, what? I mean, my grandmother tells tall tales. Okay, so okay. Take it, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, uh, salt. So, if you ever <laughs> want to know the story of the first time that she had pizza, I can tell you that because I've heard about fifty thousand times. <laughs> I want to hear it right now. Let's let's. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Because I can. Go for okay. it. So my grandfather was in the military during the Korean War. Okay. And they were um, stationed somewhere. It was before my father was born, so it would have been in like the fifties. Um, and somebody, somebody that he worked with, uh, you know, fellow whatever rank he was, I, I at the time. Um, invited him over for dinner and his wife over for dinner. So my grandmother and father went and they, they were asked, 
uh, do you want to have pizza? Okay. And my, my grandmother said, pizza? What the hell's pizza? Because it wasn't a thing, right? It wasn't a um, thing? No, it was like, oh. it wasn't. I thought pizza it, was like always been around. I guess that's nope. really ignorant. No, not in the fifties <laughs> for my uh, grandmother. It came. It came. Came popular in the forties. Okay. Okay. So she I she hadn't been exposed. Yeah, I mean, my grandmother's from a small small town in Ohio, and you're from a small town in Ohio. Have you had pizza? Yes, but it's also not the nineteen forties. Right. It originated in New York City. Okay. Um. So maybe it was like the late 40s. Dude, I don't know. You know a lot about pizza, but yeah, keep going. <laughs> uh, I'm a aficionado of pizza. Pizza historian. <laughs> pizza historian right here. Um So she was like, "What the hell is pizza?" So uh the lady the lady made pizza, but she made pizza dough in the in the wash tub, um as my grandmother would say. <laughs> uh, my grandmother says it that way too. Okay. Um and and that was the first time that she had pizza. Mm-hmm. And I heard that story Every time we had pizza oh, God. with my grandmother. That's enough. And we to, had pizza ugh. an awful lot. But like it was like it's just one of those stories. So like that's you know, so yeah. whether or not that's true or not, that's my grandmother's that is my retelling of my grandmother's retelling of what pizza was. I so, like I like that the Corey, person was also making the pizza like by hand from scratch apparently, right? Making it yeah, in a washtub. Yeah. Like that I mean, implies it was the nineteen yeah. fifties, right? Yeah. There, I mean, there wasn't the, like, wasn't McDonald's, like, in the 70s? I feel like I want to fact check there not being pizza in the 50s or or not until the 50s. Although, I mean, you are, you're our pizza historian. I don't know. You, you're more than welcome to. All right. So back to your grandmother and supplements, though. So she went to the doctor and they threw away all of her supplements, which is right. terrible because she probably was, once she had pizza the first time, was just eating straight pizza all the time and she needed those things. Yeah, I mean, my grandmother never ate enough to feed a bird, but uh, she, I mean, she just went home and rebought all the vitamins and continued to take them just didn't tell her doctor no more. God love Uh, her. Okay. I mean, that was, that was like her takeaway or whatever. I like it. I mean, she took fish oil, not in this, like in this article, it has a beautiful little pill, right? Mm -hmm. That's not the most effective way to have it. (laughs) Oh no. My grandmother poured out a a tablespoon of fish oil. And made the god awfulest face every time she ate it, but she would eat it twice a day, and she oh, would just walk over god. and put it in a spoon and just eat oh, eat the man. straight straight tablespoon of fish oil. That's wow. Okay, so she's a, she's a trooper. All right. According to Wikipedia, many regions variations of pizza in the United States was actually uh, during World War II. Okay. All right. So thirties, forties. Yeah. All right. After they came back, essentially after soldiers stationed in Italy returned from World War Two. Oh, so and been, I think that's also how we got like Americanos, right? Because they put they were putting hot water in espresso. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was World War Two, but food trivia, food trivia. Yeah. So my grandmother, living in the middle of nowhere, moved to a more metropolitan place. Mm-hmm. Which they had pizza for the first time. It is it, implied in this story. My takeaway is that my grandmother was very odd for not knowing what pizza was because it was asked yeah. very casually if he would want pizza. Right. You know, so I'm not saying that my grandmother was <laughs> like should have known. Yeah. You know, but there there's the story of the pizza. So, <laughs> I mean, that's why. Yeah. We were talking about the supplements uh, last week about how they interact. Mm-hmm. And I just thought. Yeah. This is kind of a terrible website in which it talks about that kind of thing. And yeah. I feel like it's unhelpful in a number of ways, but mostly because it doesn't really give a lot of explanation. Yeah. And it just kind of genuinely seems more scary than, like, here's what you should do instead. Right. Um, yeah, and they're kind of, they're throwing out a lot of stuff, like, this could be bad, but kind of not giving a lot of whys or a lot of citations. But, I mean, to be fair, this is not a news website. It's just kind of a... Health.org. Like, or health.com. Encyclopedic kind of site with a lot of ads. So, okay, but I think I think the important point that they're that they're making in a roundabout way here that I think is super valid and, and super useful is that a supplement is not harmless just because you can buy it over the counter, which is my same my same beef with like non steroidal anti inflammatory medications, which is going to be like um, ibuprofen things like that. 
is that like we tend to assume that because we can like readily buy something that we can't hurt ourselves with it. So you hear about people taking like, I take 12 aspirin at once or whatever. Um, okay. So yeah, it's like people think that they're totally fine. Cause they, you know, like I can buy aspirin over the counter, so I can just take 20 and, and actually like, that's not necessarily the case. And supplements, I think we, we feel that way even more, right? Like you think, Oh, I can't hurt myself with these, but not only do they have like drug interactions, but you can actually, I mean, there can be negative side effects of taking too much of anything, especially um, certain like fat soluble vitamins, which I think are A, D, E, and K, that'd be more harmful than taking too much of B and C. Um, And and I think one of the things I I found when I was was looking into this topic, I think the topic you gave me was like vitamins. (laughs) So um, (laughs) was that there's a bunch of different pairings that work together. And so it would matter like um, calcium and magnesium is one. I think, uh, there's a few more where they don't necessarily, they may not like work together. We, we always want to make everything super simple. You know, I think as, as lay people and say like, if you do, if this, then that, but sometimes they can compete for absorption. Like in the case of, of calcium, like magnesium competes with calcium for absorption. So meaning like too much magnesium equals sometimes calcium deficiency, particularly Mm. like if your calcium were to be low initially. Um, Mm. So there's this whole, like, there's like a whole set of like, um, like pairings and things where I think when we talk about vitamins being effective, part of the reason that food can be more effective than supplements is because food has a natural mix of different nutrients. And so like you tend to absorb things better because you're, when you're eating different things at once. Of course, some things can block each other, so there's that, but um, I don't know. I found a cool article. It was called Nutrition's Dynamic Duos from um, Harvard Health Publishing, which is through the Harvard Medical School, and it was vitamin D and calcium work together, sodium, potassium, vitamin B12 and folate, and a bunch of other ones, so you guys can Google that if you're interested, but yeah, I thought I thought this was like bringing up a surprisingly good point in a surprisingly unhelpful way when I'm looking at the story. You're welcome. Because it says, warning, do not mix these supplements. But then it's a little bit wishy-washy. Um, you know, and the other thing I think that like I would take away from this is that it is important to talk to your anyone who's prescribing you anything to mention the supplements you're taking. Because I think we tend to kind of be like, yeah, whatever. It's like taking a little vitamin D, like nobody cares. But maybe it matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your doctor won't know if you don't tell them. Yes. Do you take any supplements, Laura? Anything good? I do. I do not. Well, let me tell you. I took my gummy vitamin C just about an hour ago, and I'm I'm feeling pretty good about it right now because I take it with iron to increase absorption. So uh, a year ago, my iron was a little low, and so I'm doing that. And I live in Portland, so I take vitamin D because because Portland. I think that's all I really need to say there. Yeah, pretty much. Actually, it's it's not unlikely that you might need it as well. Um, to be fair, I don't actually know if I needed it. I my this doctor that I saw. Are you being a bad patient? Uh, no, I think the provider I saw was fine with it. I said he had said like, "Do you want to get tested for vitamin D deficiency?" And I was like, "No, I mean I'm from Ohio and now I live in Oregon, so I think it's safe to assume." You know, like, so we just decided to start doing it and then test after a year or something. Of course, I didn't get the test again, so I still need to do that, but. Bad patient. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Hey, I just moved here. I'm still trying to sort out the who's going to do what, so I give myself a, I give myself a pause. Listen, I'm like clicking around closing windows so I can like look at vitamin stuff. And I, and I just got back to that one with the woman in the tank top, the headless woman in a tank top grabbing her chest. I just, why? Why? You know? Why not? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so I don't know. Hey, did you know, did you know that vitamins are not regulated by the FDA? I did not. They're not. And as far as like safety and effectiveness. So the FDA might like let us know if there's been like a bacterial contamination issue or something. And manufacturers have to tell the FDA if there's like 
a new ingredient prior to marketing it. But um, that's like the other freaky thing about supplements is they're not, I think, I think I used to kind of assume that like they're selling it somewhere and we're in the US and it's been like someone checked to make sure that what's in it is what they said is in it. So not necessarily the case. Um, but there is a group called the NSF that will, that like certifies and independently tests supplements. But in my like admittedly limited experience buying supplements, like I tried to find some iron that was, you know, NSF certified and a bunch of the ones that I saw in the store, and this is totally anecdotal, but a bunch of the ones I saw in the store were like not on their website. And I had trouble like, like figuring out how to get the ones that they listed. And so I think there's, honestly, there's like a lot more to this whole vitamin thing than we want to, or I mean, iron's a mineral technically, but, um, but there's a whole lot more to the supplement thing. I was than, totally going to call you on that. I Robin. know. Thanks. I know. Thanks for jumping on that grenade. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I don't know. I always kind of worry about the supplementation. Like, I just wonder what's in it and I don't know. There was a thing that came out like a few years ago about heavy metal contamination in protein powder, which really is what like turned my like intellectual volume dial up to 10 on this issue. And and now every time there's like any kind of supplement or whatever, I'm always like, well, but could there be like arsenic in this or like, ah," you know, because it just kind of freaks me out that we, we, like, why do we not regulate this stuff? Like, really? I mean, I'm sure it's, to be the poli sci person in the room, it's probably lobbyists have prevented it. Um, <laughs> I had to guess. Wait, explain more about that. I don't really understand. Why is it I obvious? Mean, I mean, if I, I just, if it's not regulated because somebody probably at one point in time tried to and different uh, lobbyist fractions probably st- stopped it so why are certain foods uh more heavily regulated than than your protein powder Mm -hmm. Um, or like yeah like where did our nutritional push for a classification of protein powder to not be considered a food supplement therefore it's not regulated Mm -hmm. you know it's all political it's okay well listen i i fact-checked myself about it Well, I'm glad you have a poli sci take on this stuff. I think that's good because God knows I don't, but <laughs> I, I'm a good fact checker and I have fact checked myself while you were talking because I can't listen, right? That's not, that's not my thing, but <laughs> no, the, I mean, so I'm sorry, to, you said something? <laughs> <laughs> not really. Um, so the FDA does technically, they regulate the supplements, just not under the same guidelines as conventional food and drug products. So I'm going to solicitor. Yeah. So they, so I guess and I'm gonna, yeah, they do something. I'm going to wildly speculate that that, that is because uh, there's been a, a push to, to prevent it from being at the same level. Yeah. At one point in time. Um, so do you have any current medical fascinations? Um, well, yeah, kind of. I went on this, I went on this date, um, <laughs> story of my life, right? I went on this date um, with a, a guy who is like a newly minted physical therapist. Like I think he's within a few years of getting his uh, doctorate, which is a thing now. Like physical therapists used to just like you get a PT, which I think was like a master's degree, but now it's like very much more common to get a doctorate, I believe. But anyway, um, I was talking to him about different types of like soft tissue modalities in physical therapy, just meaning like when the physical therapist like works on you with their hands is how I would describe that and was kind of asking him just about different things so I have a physical therapist um and was just asking him like yeah like when he's doing x and y and z like what's that about and it turns out that there I had thought oh you know there's like maybe five or six different things they could possibly be doing like there's for example Um, There's like myofascial release and there's something called like an active release technique. And I'm no expert on the various, you know, I can't differentiate them all. But he told me like he started listing these things and there were like a dozen. And and then he was like, oh, yeah. And there's like this and there's this and there's this. And I realized that like I have this person doing this thing to me and I actually like don't know specifically what it is. Um, And I've had people in the past that that I knew it was like it was myofascial release and they were like, 
uh, this one guy was like he had studied with John Barnes, who kind of like came up with this whole technique. So I knew about that, but I had no idea that it could be one of a dozen different things, and just made me wonder about like how do they test these things, and like how do they decide what to do? Like, do you just get whatever your physical therapist happened to be exposed to, or like are different soft tissue modalities better for different conditions? I mean, that seems like it has to be the case, but. Yeah, I just so I just started thinking about like how does that stuff work, you know, and 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 like how long lasting can that be? Because I think we're starting to say that we used to say like massage types of things are just you just feel good, and now the whole myofascial release thing is is the idea is that there could be more long lasting impacts of certain types of treatments, and that gets into Alexander technique and Feldenkrais and how all these things work together. So uh, that's a long winded way of saying I'm wondering about these different soft tissue modalities and how they all work. So I might, I might look into that this week. We'll see. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're sitting there listening to this being like, I have never thought about this. <laughs> to be fair, I've never seen a physical therapist. So. Well, it's, uh, it's an ineffable joy, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I totally believe you. <laughs> It can be really helpful, and the soft tissue stuff can be fairly painful. So that's my uh, – I, I recommend it, and uh, deep breaths, people, deep breaths. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's about enough bad patienting for me for one day. What about you, Laura? I agree. Remember, folks, malpractice makes perfect. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>